and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And today we're going to be focusing on the BRICS. It's been a while.、Uh, last time we talked about the BRICS, it was around the summit when we had Dr. Sven Grimm on the show from the Center for Chinese Studies at Stellenbosch University, and he really laid the groundwork for、uh, what's happening this year in terms of the excitement around the BRICS. And one of the ways that that excitement is being manifested is in mergers and acquisitions. And an article caught our attention this week that takeovers in Africa are up by a third. So we're going to look at M and A activity and how. South Africa and China are leading thirty billion dollars in takeovers, and that's a fascinating number. Kobus, when we think of the BRICS, a lot of us think of a lot of hype,、uh, in particular because the BRICS as a whole globally have been underperforming this year.、Uh, you know, the Brazilian economy has been going through all sorts of fits and starts. China is slowing.、Uh, the question is, is it going to have a hard landing or a soft landing? Russia. You know, Russia's you know a political mess, but at the same time, oil prices are the only thing that keep the Russian economy alive.、Um, that's a slight exaggeration, but it's not too far from the truth.、Uh, India has also slowed. So, at the end of the day, is there more hype in the BRICS in this in this M and A report coming into Africa, or is there something different about Africa that you think should be separated from the discussion about the BRICS as a whole? I think、um, you know, kind of Africa presents an interesting lens to look at the BRICS、um, through, because you know, kind of as as one of the few few economies on Earth that's really growing above.、Uh, You know, above average,、um, Africa tends to, to draw you know a lot of attention,、um, and with with the EU still somewhat in a slump, and you know, kind of the the, the first world economies just weaker than they would have been generally.、Um, you know, you, 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 Africa offers this interesting kind of view of of which BRICS countries are doing what where, and and kind of what what they're strong in. Well, let's take a look at that. And again, just as a refresher,、uh, BRICS are the are Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa.、Uh, let's kind of go through the trade numbers, and we'll see who's doing what.、Um, Russia nine billion dollars in 2012. In 2012 are our latest figures that we have. We don't have the 2013 numbers yet.、Uh, we have about ten months, but we have no full year figures. So nine billion in 2012 from Russia, relatively small. Twenty-seven、uh, billion for Brazil. A lot of that is、uh, Petrobras, which is oil coming out of Angola. South Africa at 26 billion, and South Africa is interesting because it's one of the fastest growing investors、uh, in Africa. So the, in terms of non-South Africa,、uh, India is at 70 billion, and this is what puts it all into perspective, Kobus. So every the highest numbers, India at 70 billion. China in 2012 was 169 billion, so more than double the second closest. On top of that, we believe that in 2013. China trade with、uh, with all of Africa may get close to 200, if not exceed 200, when we get the final numbers in. So China really dwarfs all the other actors. So all not all bricks are not created equal here. And I guess the question is is that is it is bricks a relevant, useful term to use when you've got such big discrepancies in their engagement in Africa? 
Yeah, I think it's not only, um, you know, kind of the numbers, it's also that they have such different relationships with Africa. So it's, it's almost impossible to, to compare Russia's relationship with Africa to Brazil's. Um, and yeah, I, th- I agree with you that the fact that China so outweighs all of them, China's kind of is, is its own special case in a way. Um, I think that this is much more, it's, it's much more kind of a, a grouping of convenience than necessarily making that much sense as, as, as a coherent community, which I think it really still isn't. It isn't a, co- a coherent community. I don't think it will ever be a coherent community, in part because, uh, at least on the the India and Russia side of it, you know, India and Russia have such fraught relations with China. Um, both of these countries have, you know, either been at war with one another or have been on the verge of war uh, for decades. And it's hard to see them kind of really coming together beyond a, a, a very narrow strategic interest and much less to do what they've talked about, which is starting up a BRICS bank. Now, I guess the question of a BRICS bank comes into focus a little bit more in Africa. In, in, over the past week, the, the Republicans in the U.S. Congress rejected a motion or a part of a bill, and and I only read this in passing, but I think it's interesting for our conversation here, about granting emerging powers more say in the IMF. And and this is really pissing off the the Indians the, the and also the Brazilians as well as the Chinese. So the Republicans don't want to give up power in Washington to emerging powers. And then what the concern is on the part of the IMF and others is that they'll form regional banks, uh, much like there's a drive here in Asia as well as in Africa to form a BRICS bank. Uh, but at the same time, people are worried about these regional banks here in Asia and in Africa that it might be too dominated by the Chinese. So where, what, what, what happens to these kind of multilateral institutions that might rise up in the ashes of the Bretton Woods agreements that, that may not be able to evolve in, in the modern age? Yeah, I mean, it's it's so interesting. You know, from from a southern perspective, my my feeling is just that that more more diversity in these kind of institutions is generally going to be a good idea. Um, you know, kind of the Africa suffered so much at the hands of the IMF um, and the World Bank through the the eighties and nineties um, that I think you know, kind of, there's they're going to find a very little sympathy, um, you know, and very little support in Africa for for its continued. Um, Centrality in the world. Um, my my feeling is that it's just you know kind of developing economies is going to be helped by a, a greater number of players in this field, and that's where I think one of the things that's I agree with you. I think that's where we're going is more bilateral than it is going to be multilateral. Uh, we can't replicate those institutions of the past. I don't. I, we're in a different time in history, so I, I suspect what's going to happen is that if you see the you know one after another of these big trade delegations from BRICS and others, where we've seen the Japanese, we've seen the Indians, we've seen, you know, certainly the Chinese, you know, rushing into Africa one after another to to set up deals. Now, it's interesting because the Indians take great pride in in positioning themselves as the anti-Chinese, as the counter-Chinese, the non-Chinese entity. Uh, They'll say that their products are better. They'll say their quality of their construction is better. And here's the best one. They'll really promote the fact that they come from a democratic country. And so they'll talk about, they'll be able to talk about political legitimacy in a democratic context for a country like, say, Uganda and Tanzania that are less like the Chinese politically and more like the Indians. So I guess I wonder, 
how much these the BRICs really have in common to be able to do anything beyond the rhetoric of a big summit. But at the end of the day, the political differences, the economic disparities between the investments of the two, of the various BRICs partners makes it all really pretty meaningless. Well, you know, kind of one of the problems I think is was was recently articulated by um, Yushen Wu, who appeared on our show before several times, and by Chris Alden. You know, kind of, and both of them obviously are at uh, the South African Institute for International Affairs, um, and they made the point that um, that the BRICS is the BRICS isn't a community yet, um, and they don't um, they particularly because they don't really have any kind of sense of shared soft power or any kind of shared, um, you know, kind of uh, life, shared life outside of, of just kind of government agreements. You know, kind of there isn't that necessarily yet that much academic exchange between them. There isn't, you know, kind of any any sense of kind of a, a shared way of life. Um, and that the, you know, kind of the development of BRICS as a, as a real kind of power in the world, as a transformative power in the world, particularly in the diplomatic sphere, is going to depend on this, on, on as, you know, a projection of a shared way of life. And that, I think, is, is really interesting because it makes you then wonder what that shared way of life would be, except for being not Western and being developing. Um, you know, because being developing a non-Western in a Brazilian way and in an Indian way and in a Chinese way, they're very different kind of ways of life um, and very different visions of the world. Um, and some of them are, in, you know, kind of have more appeal than others um, if, in different kind of ways. So, so developing that is the big challenge, I think. Well, it also, to your point, it is indicative of the, the really dramatic change in Africa's economic interests, uh, which have for centuries depended on Europe. And Standard Bank came out with a, a fascinating BRICS Africa trade update from the 8th October 2013. So I think if you, you search for Standard Bank BRICS Africa trade update, uh, you'll come across it. And one of the most interesting charts that they have in there is the comparison of BRICS Africa trade growth with EU Africa trade growth. And we're looking at two, maybe 300% more trade going into uh, in terms of percentage growth going into the BRICS countries than going to the EU. And so more and more, Africa's future economic alliances will probably be with the emerging South than they will be with the United States or with Europe. And especially as the United States becomes less oil dependent and imports less oil from Africa, which is its primary import from the continent today, uh, you can see that Africa's future is going to be directed towards India, Brazil, and, and China for the most part. I'm, I'm not so sure about Russia. So I thought that was an interesting uh, point. And do you get the sense that in Africa there's a recognition of this, that maybe the, the future is with the South and not with the North? Yes, I think so. I think that that definitely that's definitely the the, the buzzword in in South Africa at the moment. So yeah, but you see, ev- everyone kind of is, is is throwing themselves into South South whatever. Okay, you know? but you know, we we but just to challenge you on this a little bit, we we talked a you know a couple months ago about the kind of you know pop, you know pop culture influence of the United States, which remains very very high. Public approval of the United States remains very very high, despite the fact that the United States its overall level of economic 
economic engagement in Africa has been falling. It's very contentious in terms of, you know, the 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 wars it's had in in the region and its involvement in African wars. And so, yet despite all that, the United States remains high. China remains relatively low. So I'm I'm wondering if popular opinion is keeping up with what you're suggesting. Well, you know, kind of, I wonder there whether, you know, kind of, the big issue here is how South China is, you know, kind of, to which extent China fits into a South-South exchange, you know, relationship. To a certain extent, it does. Um, but in other senses, it doesn't necessarily that much. Um, I think if you, if you compare the influence of Brazil in Africa, particularly, obviously, you know, in certain parts of Africa, there's obviously, there's a, a language barrier. Um, and, you know, Brazil Brazilian influence is much stronger in um, in Portuguese-speaking Africa, but nowadays, for example, South African satellite TV. Um, is suddenly fell in love with, with telenovela. So there are like two or three um, dedicated telenovela no, um, channels uh, have been set up in the last few months. Um, so images of life in Brazil and in and the rest of Latin America is flowing into Africa. You know, kind of the, the there's a lot of, of these um, of shared kind of again, it's it's a way of life kind of thing, and 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 I think there's some kind of overlaps between African and Brazilian ways of life, um, and also you know with that flows of 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 culture that that are going back and forth um, to a certain extent with India as well. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just you know one of the points that that's brought up to me a lot when it comes to Brazil is the the dismally low awareness of China in Brazil in terms of the understanding of. Of Chinese Chinese culture in the recognition that China is a is a major power in in the world today and in the appreciation of in that in, in Brazil is is apparently pathetically low and so I wonder if one of the, the the benefits and the dividends of China's engagement in Africa is the fact that you've got tens of thousands of young Chinese in their 20s and 30s project managers engineers you know you name it who are doing their tours in Africa and will eventually make it back to China uh, in managerial in administrative positions and leave leadership roles, uh, and that will help them. And that is one of the advantages that will move them f- ahead of the other bricks faster than anything that we see in the, in the public media, which uh, can be very, very slow to shape popular culture. I suppose, but I mean, one could also play the other the other way around in the sense that, you know, kind of ignorance of the rest of the world is frequently a sign of strength. You know, um, you, you know, kind of obviously. I mean, not not to, not to play in stereotypes, but there's this, there is a stereotype that Americans tend to not frequently not be that's very not curious about the race of no, the no, world. No, no, but that's not a stereotype. That's actually backed up by fact. Less than 10%, <laughs> no, but and I, I say that seriously. Less than ten percent mm-hmm. of Americans have passports. Uh, awareness of international affairs, in some ways, as you said, is taken as a point of pride. It's this, you know, we don't need to know about the rest of the world. The rest of the world needs to know about us because we are the exactly. world's most important market. Um, that's, you know, fading in terms of it's being able to hold up anymore. But nonetheless, you're right. You're, that's not even a stereotype. That is actually supported by fact. China, regrettably, think, has that too. China's yeah, awareness of the rest of the world China is pathetically low. And I think to a certain extent, Brazil, both Brazil and India has that as well. Um, you know, in the sense that they, they see themselves as centers of worlds. Um, and that, you know, that, that they don't necessarily need to take so much 
so much, you know, kind of have so much awareness about the rest of the world because the rest of the world comes to them. Um, and, you know, the fact that there is this culture in these countries might, they, they might be true. I mean, they might be right in the sense that the, the, the you know, kind of the accumulated power t- it tends to act as a magnet and the rest of the world does kind of get sucked into their, their, their sphere um, and get translated for them. So, you know, kind of in that sense, you know, you know, kind of it, it might be indicative of that Brazil and China um, and India, you know, kind of are powerful now and more and more in the future because they don't necessarily see, you know, take that much notice of the rest of the world. Well, as a group, the BRICS are definitely where the action's at for Africa. We can see it. All the numbers point in that direction. And then what you have to do is look one by one through each of the BRICS to see how they are employing radically different engagement strategies on the continent. Uh, I highly recommend looking up the Standard Bank BRICS Africa trade update from 2013 from uh, in October. Uh, The headline is still growing, though at a slower clip. And they go through, you know, country by country in a very easy way uh, to, to look at what's happening. But definitely, if you're in Brazil and you're listening to us in Brazil, learn Mandarin, learn, <laughs> it'll help, uh, and, you know, and then if you are in uh, in India, um, you know, in, in India, I guess my final point here is that Indians oftentimes have an enormous amount of confidence when it comes to Africa, in part because of the long history in South and East Africa. Uh, but it's a different place. I talk to a lot of my African contacts who warn, who say that Indians oftentimes take it for granted that they know the place, and it's, and, and I, I always just wonder if that Indians haven't necessarily evolved as fast when it comes to the the emerging African market and and that in the Indian bureaucracy back in New Delhi um, hasn't been able to adapt as fast. The foreign ministry is notoriously understaffed, unlike the Chinese. And and so when the Indians kind of say, we are a rival to China in Africa, are they actually able to deliver? So just I put that as a question mark out there. Uh, We'd love to hear what you think. Uh, Kobus and I, every day, we're on Facebook at facebook.com slash China Africa project. And Kobus, if people want to stay in touch with you, what's the best way for them to reach you? Well, probably the easiest way to reach me is on our Facebook page, and you'll see um, our name and its names in brackets when we respond. And actually, before I forget, I'd like to just thank uh, Victoria Shaw, who's one of the one of the um, readers of our of our Facebook page and regular commenters. And she actually alerted us to the Standard Bank report that we that we quoted today. So thanks, Victoria. Um, and people, other people who, who want to follow me on Twitter, you can find me at Stadnesk. That's S T A D E N E S Q E. And just as Victoria did, she posted up an article that we hadn't seen and we posted up. So if you come across something that's interesting, you can either direct message us on Twitter. Uh, you can find me at E-O-Lander, that's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R, or you can message us on our wall on Facebook. And most of the times, like what Victoria did, we either post it up on our wall or we'll take it into the podcast. Uh, if you'd like to join us on the podcast and you've got something interesting to say, just drop us a note. Numbers of our guests have actually shown up to, uh, have been able to connect this way. You know, we do about almost between 30 and 40,000 downloads a month now for the show. So it's a great way of reaching out to an academic community, diplomatic and journalistic community as well. So uh, we'd love to hear from you. That's our bottom line. Uh, Until next time, we'll be back again with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. 